1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. While things are still unsettled in the world... We are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. Helen Thompson is a neuroscientist by training, journalist by trade, who spent years traveling the world in search of the most extraordinary brains. Not the biggest ones, nor the ones that can recite the most digits of the number pi, but the ones that make you reevaluate what it means to look at the world. The brains that see auras feel another person's pain or play music around the clock. It's been 30 odd years since Oliver Sacks wrote The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and neuroscience has evolved by light years since then. Neurogenetics, brain mapping, optogenetics, these were just collections of meaningless syllables in 1985. New brain conditions are being recognized these days that were previously unthinkable. And so in her new book, fittingly called Unthinkable, Helen Thompson sets out to figure out what life is really like for people who literally see the world in a totally different way. Not what life is like in the lab or in treatment, but every day. How does a man who believes he's a tiger live among his human community? How can a father who believes that he's dead go to dinner with his kids? What is it like to be lost in your own home or to remember every single day that you've been alive? Helen joins us from London to explore the unthinkable. Thanks for chatting with me, Helen. Thanks for having me. So in pursuing these cases of, as you call them, the world's most extraordinary brains, was there a central question, I guess, about the human condition that you were trying to answer?
2: At first, when I came across all of these case studies, as they were initially, of people who have extraordinary brain disorders, I was just fascinated by the brain disorders themselves. But over time, as a science journalist, I I came to actually start speaking to the people who were living with them. And I realised that they all had these incredible stories to tell. And so initially I was, I was wanting to meet these people to hear about their lives and find out how their perceptions of the world differed from my own. So that was the first question that I was most intrigued by. But having then spoken to them and travelled around the world meeting them, I began to realise that they um, could show me all of these tricks and, um, and ways in which my own brain was, was so much more than I had ever realised. Do you feel like now, two years later, having spoken to
1: all of these extraordinarily different people, that you have a different understanding of your own brain? Do you feel like you have a newer, better brain or <laughs> just one that you're able
2: to access more? Um, I think it's a strange concept that we kind of take for granted that what we see is exactly the same as what other people see. So um, what I've discovered was that that's probably not true at all. We all see a slightly different variation of the world. Um, We might see different colours, we might have hallucinations, we might hear uh, voices, or we we might react to movements and emotions differently. And so I think I realised that basically I need to question my own perception of the world Uh, more perhaps uh, that I don't see the world in in the same way as everybody else and and that there are all of these secrets that we can kind of unlock in our own brains that might help us find our way around better or have a a better memory or or even make better decisions so there's lots of tricks you can learn in the book um, from these people who have these strange disorders or how to teach yourself to hallucinate I liked that one yeah absolutely
1: (laughs) So speaking of hallucinations, I did not realize that they could be something other than visual. And there's a woman you spoke to, Sylvia, who can't hear that well in the real world, so to speak, the external world, but she has an ongoing hallucination of a sound. But to her brain, that makes perfect sense.
2: What's going on there? Yes, so Sylvia has a permanent musical hallucination. So whenever she is awake, she hears mostly classical music and it's so loud that it can drown out normal speech. It sounds exactly like the radios on, is how she describes it. And we find that hallucinations tend to occur when one of our senses is disrupted or lost. So um, often people who are going blind can sometimes start seeing visions Often they're of, of young children and people from the past for some reason. Um, scientists aren't quite sure why, but, and pilots still report the sensation that when they're flying over white cloud for long periods of time, when the colour and the scenery doesn't change around them, that they can start hallucinating. One person uh, described himself as feeling like he was sitting on the wing of his own plane. Um, when the brain loses a sensation, uh, whether it's sight or, or hearing, then it starts to fill in the blanks for itself and make up what's going on. And for some people, uh, for most of us, our other senses and other parts of the brain kick in and say, no, this isn't right. And our world gets kind of back to normal. But in some people, their brains kind of run away with themselves. And these predictions that the brain makes based on faulty information um, actually become perceived as what's really out there. What struck me reading the book is how many of these
1: neurological conditions have to do with the disconnect between the brain's internal and external perceptions or, you know, even cross connections that most people don't have between these various senses.
2: Yes. So uh, there's a guy who since birth really has seen colourful, what he calls auras around people's bodies, depending on the emotion that he feels towards them. And it all sounds very mystical, but actually it's got very scientific background to it it's a kind of synesthesia a crossing of the senses which means that when he feels a strong emotion it triggers within his brain the cells that are responsible for color which is why he sees these colorful auras around people that he can't help but see that's something that's obviously in within his vision but it's what we call koala it's it's his sense of the world so scientists have come up with these incredible experiments on this guy. His name's Ruben. He lives in Spain, and and it, it, he just has this fascinating life. And his brain shows us just how differently we we see the world. And uh, uh, one of the um, Ways in which we can kind of prove this even more easily is is the uh, blue and black dress meme that you might have come across a couple of years ago, where half the world seemed to see this dress as blue and black and half of it saw it as gold and white. And that just goes to show, you know, really clearly that we, we all do see different colors differently. Yeah,
1: I was astounded by the range of synesthesia in your book. Just like with hallucinations, I had no idea how many different kinds there were. We always hear about color or numbers or emotions being all tangled up. and and little else, but actually, synesthesia is much bigger and
2: broader and more wonderful than that, right? Yeah, so um, there are lots of weird and wonderful types of synesthesia you can have. There's ticker tape synesthesia, where People actually see words coming out of people's mouths as they speak. That was, that was one that really stuck out for me as this strange kind of crossing of the senses. But people can taste lemon, say, when they hear the sound of a bell. And there's all sorts of ways in which the sensory parts of our brain can cross with one another and, and stimulate one another and, and create these weird sensations. What was
1: the most... Surprising, I guess, or unbelievable case of synesthesia that you came across.
2: I think it wasn't so much; it was unbelievable in terms of not believing that it was true, but that wow, this is amazing and astonishing. Was was Joel the doctor who felt other people's pain as if it's happening to his own body? He has a condition called mirror touch synesthesia. It's it all harks back to something that we all have, which is empathy he basically has hyper empathy and the reason we all empathize with people is due to something called mirror neurons in our brain and these are brain cells that act in the same way whether I perform a movement or I I see you perform that same movement And it's thought to allow us to kind of put ourselves in other people's shoes for our brains to understand what's going on around us and and know how to react to that. And most of us don't go around actually physically feeling other people's touch and pain, though, and emotions like Joel does, because um, we have these veto signals that tell us, uh, no, it's not happening to you, it's happening to this other person. But in Joel's case, uh, the these veto signals aren't quite getting through and his mirror neurons aren't being diminished by these veto signals. So his brain mirrors everything that's happening around him and makes him feel like it's happening to his own body. And I just found it so astonishing because it, in some ways it felt as though it was something that you would quite like. You know, we all often say, oh, I wish I knew how this person was feeling. And in other ways, I thought, wow, if you're actually feeling everybody's quite literally on your own body that also must be quite overwhelming so it was a really interesting person to meet he's used it so well he's a doctor and and you'd think that would be a strange career for somebody who can feel other people's pain on his own body you know when he injects somebody in the spine he actually feels the sensation of a needle going into his own spine when he intubates somebody he can feel the sensation of the tube going down his own throat he he told me this incredible story of seeing somebody's amputated arm and feeling as though his own arm had been ripped off Um, And so obviously it can be very difficult to experience that throughout the day in a hospital, but in other ways, it allows him to really get in touch with how somebody is feeling. And and that's something that his patients really um, love, you know, the ability for your doctor to really know exactly how you're feeling. And Joel's condition actually really showed me something after I'd published the book. Um, I got an email from a woman who explained that having read the book, she really associated with Joel and f- thought that perhaps she might be suffering from something similar. The way she explained it, it sounded exactly like what Joel experiences. But in this woman's case, she had never realised what it was. Um, she'd never seen any doctors about it, but she felt, um, she told me that she basically spent her whole life alone because she couldn't bear to be in the company of other people because she felt too much of their emotions and too much of their sensations on her own body and it was just too overwhelming for her and it really showed me that in one case you've got this the same condition but in one person somebody who understood it and had explored it and had scientists explain it to them um, had actually been able to utilize it and live a really happy and, and healthy life and yet somebody with exactly the same brain In exactly the same condition, who hadn't had the support around her to understand it and know how to live with it. It had really impacted her life really negatively. You can't say that somebody has a brain disorder or a strange brain because it's more complex than that. You can have two people with the exact same brain and it affects their lives in different ways. And it's something that I think neurologists and psychologists are really getting to grips with now. That it really depends on on how you support these people with strange perceptions or, or strange experiences and and how you understand your own brain and and as to how it actually affects your your life
1: right it seems like there are so many variables to take into account for treatment or even
2: diagnosis yeah there's not this profile of a you know in quotation marks normal brain and so to say that somebody has this condition or this abnormality or, you know, hasn't got a normal brain is just impossible because there is no such thing as a normal brain. And so it's, it's just so much more complex than being able to sort of shoehorn people into this box of having this condition and that condition because in fact perhaps we should just be looking more at where we sit on these um, spectrums of of traits and behaviours and we all seem to sit at one end, further towards one end or the other and and it's the combination of all those traits and behaviours and the way the brain works that create us and and our behaviours and our personalities and, and then you add context into that and you add support networks and you add life experiences into that and that all goes towards a a picture of of what your life is like. I mean, it's what people call neurodiversity.
1: Yeah. One of the most affecting parts of your book was learning how many people with these unusual brains were turned away or ignored or Mm. misdiagnosed by doctors who didn't know what was going on with them. Or the doctors had a belief that if you see or hear anything that's not, quote unquote, in the real world, then you must be schizophrenic.
2: Yeah, so somebody who really stands out in that case was a woman called Sharon, who we now know has a condition that means that she cannot create a mental map of her environment. And that means that she's basically permanently lost, even between her own bathroom and kitchen. Some of the time she can she can navigate completely normally and then maybe up to 100 times a day her mental map flips as she calls it and everything, looks, everything that she imagines should be on the left is now in front of her um, and it, it makes her really disorientated. And it happened firstly when she was five years old and she told her mum and for various reasons her mum told her to never ever tell anybody about this because they'll think she's a witch and they'd burn her. And obviously, having been told this by your mum at five, Sharon really took this to heart and and believed this was true and and never told anybody about this condition until she was about 30. And and even then, many doctors just hadn't come across it before. And they they did lots of tests. They couldn't find anything wrong uh, with the anatomy of her brain. They couldn't find anything wrong with her navigation. She didn't have any tumours or lesions in the brain that could explain it. And and they did. They basically told her she was crazy, uh, that she might have a split personality disorder. And it was only actually much later in her life, when she was in her 50s, that researchers began to explore how the brain creates our mental map how we know when we close our eyes where the door is without having to actually see it and how we can imagine in our minds our route to work and and having discovered that later on they realized that the parts of the brain that are responsible for navigation talk to each other a lot and and in Sharon's brain they just they don't communicate well enough and it's as though the pieces of the puzzle that we need to create this mental map just fall apart or or some of the pieces are put in the wrong place in her case Um, and now we know what the condition is and we know that it's actually genetic and Sharon thinks now as an adult that perhaps her mum had also experienced it herself and was too scared to tell Sharon and perhaps had had some bad experiences which explained her reaction to Sharon when she talked about it with her. Um, You know Sharon hid it from the world for for almost 30 years and and found these tricks uh, in order to get around and and was very depressed by it when the doctors told her that they didn't know what was wrong with her. And now actually understanding how her perceptions of the world are created and why they're different perhaps to other people's has allowed her to live a really fulfilling and really happy life. So it just kind of, it's a really good example of how understanding your perceptions of the world and how they might differ from other people's can really help you embrace life.
1: Yeah, and Sharon's condition was only diagnosed in the early 2000s, right? Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, really recently.
1: It makes me wonder how many conditions there are out there that we have left to figure out or even uncover.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Oliver Sacks was a real inspiration and somebody who um, I followed for many years and read his books and got to speak to as well Um and he obviously looked into lots of strange brain disorders in, in the 80s. That was part of the reason I wanted to write this book, was to explore what had been discovered since then. Um, but you're right that, it, you know, we are still discovering things even within the last decade. So what else is there out there? And one of the other things I I realised having met all these people is that so many people don't actually even realise they have a strange perception of the world until they're adults until somebody says oh no that's not that's not quite how i see the world and it comes back to this idea of we, we don't tend to question how we look at the world and or compare how we see things with other people um so yeah you're, you're right what are the stranger landscapes as as oliver sacks used to call them um travelers to unimaginable worlds um, it does make you think oh what else is out there
1: Are there any people who've written in since you published your book or are there cases that still remain mysteries?
2: I've had several people write in to say that they think they have one of the conditions in the book. Um, There are a few other conditions that I would like to explore that have recently come out in case studies uh, in scientific journals. Um, there's, There's one condition in which people stop being able to feel fear and that's a really interesting condition I think because there's lots of um, repercussions from this and there's one particular community uh, of people who live in in Africa who for various reasons all have this condition and they, they so they can't feel fear but one of the results of this is that they also tend not to tell lies and when you think about it it kind of makes sense because why do we tell lies? We tell lies because we're fearful of the consequence of telling the truth. And, and if you can't feel fear, then you have no reason to tell lies. And I, I, I just thought this was, when I found this out, I just thought that's, that would be an amazing community to visit, you know, a community that doesn't tell lies. What, you know, what's that like?
1: For more incredible cases of the human brain doing extraordinary things, check out Helen Thompson's book, Unthinkable. In our show notes, we've got links to everything you need to know, including Helen's interview with a dead man, or at least a man who thinks he's dead, and a breakdown of our brain's internal GPS, like the one that doesn't quite work in Sharon's brain, from the scientists who won the 2014 Nobel Prize for the discovery of it. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.